My grandfather Lavoie um, is and was a clown. And you kind of have to be a clown when your parents name you Lavoie, but he was legitimately a clown in the Barnum and Bailey Circus for many years, and later in life he taught at the Clown College down in Sarasota, Florida. But in his later years, he and my grandmother opened up a salad restaurant, which I have fond memories of working on or working in during the summers. But one particular place I remember most about the restaurant was this wall that was just filled with pictures from all their adventures traveling all over the world and all the interesting people and friends that they had met. But one day I, I remember, is one of the last years we were visiting there before they ended up closing the restaurant down, I remember just, it was either talking to me or someone else and just going through all the pictures and talking about, oh, well, here's so-and-so, and that's when we were in Spain, and I met them, and they flew jets, and he said, well, they're dead now, and then he kind of kept going on and kept mentioning people, and, well, they're dead now, and after saying it a few times, he just kind of stopped and looked at the wall and quietly was like, well, I guess all my friends are dead. Now, I remember that moment because it kind of just, just hit me. And I realized, well, one day that's going to be me too. And that really is true as all of us. Right? One day we'll look and we'll look out and all of our friends and many of the people that we know will be dead and gone. And we've come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes for 12 weeks or 13 weeks. Repeatedly, we've been reminded that all of us are going to die and nothing will remain of us but pictures on someone's wall before they go in a box. The question is, so what? And we come to the end and the big conclusion is, well, what are we supposed to do? What is the answer to life's meaninglessness or how should we live? What's the message of this book? And the answer and the conclusion is obedience. All of our lives come down to whether or not we're going to obey and follow God or not. Because all of us will die. The only question that matters or not is whether our life was lived in obedience to Jesus or if it wasn't. Nothing else matters. And so we're going to read the end of this book. We'll read all of chapter 12. And so if you are able, if you would stand with me um, for the reading of God's word. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. For before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. And the strong men are bent. And the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter has been heard. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, 
whether good or evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, that you would help us to, to hear from you one last time from this book. Lord, I pray that the book would not just fade into our memories, but that the message and the point and what you want us to learn would be embedded deep into our hearts and that we would live it out in our lives, that you would help us to see what this means for us and how we can live our lives in obedience to you. I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So our first point in your bulletin is this, that we should obey even in evil days. That we should obey God even in evil days. So like my grandfather stood in his restaurant and warned me when I was young that death was coming, so Solomon too, he stands here and he warns us that death and evil days are ahead. Verse 1, he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. This warning should especially be heeded by those of us who are younger. Okay, we got to remember our creator. And this call to remembrance, really, it's not just a call to, hey, remember God made you. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to recognize that you have been created. The fact that you are a creature, it obligates you to the creator. And we should obey him when we are, are young. Why? Well, because you don't just suddenly start doing things just because you got older. Okay, if you're not following Jesus now in your youth, you probably won't wake up tomorrow and suddenly start obeying him later on. It's like any habit. If you're not eating healthily now, you might have a hard time changing your diet in the future. So remember God in your youth. And we have to obey not just because old age is coming, but evil days are coming. And the reality is that some days are easier to follow Jesus than others, aren't they? Some days you wake up filled with joy and other days you wake up grumpy. Some days you can't wait to read God's word and other days it's boring and you'd rather not. Some days you're patient and caring and some days everything seems to just make you angry. When the disciples, they, they loved following Jesus, right? When they got to heal the sick and see miracles. Okay, they had a little bit harder time following Jesus when he got arrested. Some days are not just harder to follow Jesus than others. Some days are just plain evil. There's some days that we don't enjoy. In the text, it even seems to say that there are evil years that are going to come near. And I don't think it's necessarily helpful for us to go through history and decide, okay, well, is this an evil year? Was this not an evil year? Well, pretty much since Jesus and before Jesus, most of them have been evil in one way, shape, or form or another, certainly for somebody. But the primary command and the conclusion here is that we're to obey. We're to obey Him. We're to obey Him even when the days are evil, even when the years are evil. We still have to remember our Creator and we still have to follow Jesus. In recent years, I've heard Christians kind of refer to our days as, as evil. And I've heard this for you know, as long as I was paying attention. But some will say things like, well, the days are so evil, so you know, we don't really have to obey Jesus right now. You know, this political climate is just too important. We don't need to love our neighbors anymore. We've got to do something different. Well, my boss, he's just so toxic and terrible. I don't have to submit to them and work as unto the Lord because this is an evil day. Well, people are leaving churches in mass, so we don't have to, you know, operate how God has called us to. Let's just do what we think is best, whether or not God commands us to or not. Listen to me. Just because the day is evil, it does not exempt you from obedience. 
The disciples don't get a pass to abandon Jesus just because he was on trial. He says, oh, it's okay. You don't have to follow me now. I get it. It's hard. Okay, you can't tell God that you're going to obey him when the good, the good days are good only. Because most of our life is going to be lived in evil days. So if you only obey and you follow Jesus on easy and good days, you probably aren't really going to follow Jesus. At least not for much of your life. Now all of the rest of the verses, kind of 2 through 8, it's a poem. It's this long poetic description of these evil days. I'm reminded of when I studied poetry in high school and college, and I honestly always struggled with it. Or the teachers would ask you something like, well, what do these blue curtains mean? And I would guess, I don't know what these blue curtains mean. They're blue. What do you want from me? Okay, and was, I could never really discover the right answer. That's a frustrating thing about poetry. And I think this poem, too, it's got a couple of possible different interpretations. I think they're all probably right in some way. It could be describing just old age. And the, the evil days are just the evil that comes from slowly aging. The keepers that are trembling, that's your legs. The strong men that bend, that's your, your back that slowly bends as you age. The grinders, it's your teeth as they fall out or they break down and you have to get them replaced or fixed. The windows dimming, that's a reference to your eyesight as it gets worse and you can't see quite as well as you used to. The doors, that's your ears as it gets harder to hear. But even if you can't hear very well, you're still going to struggle to sleep and you wake up early at the sounds of just a bird. As you get older, right, you don't climb quite as many ladders. Usually, some of you do. You're going on top of roofs as much because regular life gets a little more treacherous than it used to be. And, and the way that it, it says there too, right, for them, that's the highway. There's a lot of stuff that can happen on the highway when you're out traveling. So as you get older, you're more wary and fearful of going long distances. And your hair grows white, just like the white blossoms of an almond tree. And you kind of shuffle along. As life gets more difficult, you don't have the same desires that you used to. There's a lot in this poem, I think, that fits aging and, and getting older. Right? Getting older is not for the faint of heart. Okay? But it's also, it's evil. It's evil not because it's hard. It's evil because we weren't created to get old and to die. We were made to live forever. This is a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of the fall. And it can be hard to follow Jesus as you, get age, as you age. Right? There are many who get more bitter and more angry as they get older. And the pain and the difficulty of chronic pain can, can break them down. They give up. I think this passage is not just about aging. I think it fits other circumstances, too, that make it difficult to obey. Verse 2, before the sun and light and moon and stars are darkened, the clouds return after the wane. Rain. Okay, we've got a lot more gloomy days. Recently, we've had many of them, right? Or cold days, at least. I don't know about you, but when it's gloomy, I get tired. Okay, I don't usually nap, but when there's no sun, then suddenly I start wanting to nap. Makes me want to sleep and sit by a fire and read books. Some of you, you may even be affected by winter weather, right? It can send you into depression. You just miss the sun. But it's not just when the weather is dark that this is talking about. I think it's also when the atmosphere of the age is gloomy. The very air we breathe starts to feel like the sun has faded. And then it's hard to obey. Verse 3, in the, in the days when the keeper of the house tremble, the strong men, they're bent. The grinders cease because they're few, and those who look through the window are dimmed. This seems like grim circumstances for a community. Okay, if you picture a, a village in Israel, and this is describing it, that doesn't sound like a fun place to go visit. People, they're afraid. They're trembling even inside their homes. The strong men who are supposed to protect the town, they look weak. 
They're no longer keeping the enemy at bay, but their soldiers are just kind of drooping and they look pathetic. No one goes out to grind their grain because they're afraid and most of them are dead and people are scared to even peek out their windows. So they want to know what's out there. Definitely don't want anyone to come in. Verse 4, the doors of the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. The daughters of song are brought low and they're all afraid of what is high and the terrors are in the way. If you picture a community like that, that's evil days. Much of these days, really what it would be like during war or during a siege. Okay, when the army is close and, and they know, they're hearing reports that they're on their way. People are staying inside, hoping maybe this will all just blow over. Maybe they won't come here. Maybe you can picture some of the war-torn cities in Ukraine right now. They would fit this description. Okay, people are afraid. They don't know when the bombs and the missiles may fall or would come. I'm going to keep my doors shut and not look outside. Verse 5 continues, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Grasshoppers, they may be dragging themselves along because they're fat from eating all the almond blossoms, just having a great time. Or maybe the grasshoppers are just dying because they've eaten everything. That's a depressing sight. But primarily what we see here is that death has come. The only people in the streets are those marching in funeral processions. It's not an exciting sight. Six, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Everything dies and everything fades. Even our most precious metals, even all of our stuff and our money, even our bodies, all of our friends and our family, it all just fades away into the dust in which we were made, that God breathed into. And it's hard to obey and to follow Jesus in days of death and darkness. But we're commanded to. We're expected to. Because listen, he reminds us, of if everything is vanity, if everything is vaporous, Okay, then it really does matter if we obey or not. Ultimately, that's the only thing that matters. Because your political party winning and achieving all of its goals is vanity. Okay, your company, your family meeting all of their dreams and all of them coming true, it's vanity. Everything's vanity. I mean, we're, just, we're all going to die. So why would we disobey our Creator in order to achieve our dreams that are just made out of dust? No Christian should ever say, well, the days are evil, so I can sin now. Or this moment is too significant. Now I'm allowed to sin. I can do what I want to do. Our days are going to be evil, and, and we are all going to return to dust. So what we should do is we should obey Jesus, even on evil days. Maybe even especially on evil days. But we're not just to obey on the evil days. Point number two is that, well, we should obey God always. We should obey God always. This is really the entire point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, it's, a, it's a book that's just filled with wisdom. It can seem dark and depressing at first. I don't quite think it is. Maybe you disagree and still feel that way. Uh, but most of this book really is super practical and applicable um, as we've looked at it. Verse 9, he tells us, you know, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. He was weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Okay, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And he worked hard when he put this book together. He was weighing the Proverbs and the wisdom and everything that he had seen that others had written, and he was putting it all together. 
He didn't just sit down on a blank page with his pen and just start making up stuff, whatever came to his head. And what we've been studying and reading through, he was carefully arranged in order for it to be helpful and applicable in our lives. He took great care to do this. Every chapter was written after itself on purpose. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. It might sound strange to associate delight with this book. Okay, but I think if you properly understand the book of Ecclesiastes, it should lead us to delight. Because if we understand the wisdom of God's word, that always leads us to true delight. If we understand the truth of our death and the truth of our lives, and then we will openly delight, right, in God in all of our lives. Most importantly, what we see here too is that the words in this book are true. They're true. Doesn't mean any, all, some of the other books aren't true. They're all true. But this is one of the books of the Bible I think I, I would recommend even to non-believers. Because there's truth to be found in these pages that I think even the spiritually blind can see the wisdom of. They're not just the complaints of an ancient depressed king. These are words of true wisdom. In verse 11, the words of the wise, they are like goads, like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. Okay, the words in Ecclesiastes, there's like goad. So a goad, that's a cattle prod. In case you had to look up, you know, what that is. I did, because, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a rancher. It was a long stick that they would use, right? And they'd kind of goad the cattle into doing what they should doing, and poking them along. In a similar way, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does to us. It pokes us. It prods us into obedience. It pokes us when we start to get materialistic and obsessed with money. It pokes us and says, hey, you're going to die. It's all going to fade. It pokes us when we start to desire adoration and love from one another. And we think that'll fix it. It pokes us and says, hey, they're all going to die and you're going to die too. It's meaningless. It's not going to work. It pokes us all the time and just reminds us every day, hey, you're going to die. Don't forget. It's been poking you a lot for a while, hasn't it? It feels like a goad or like a rock in your shoe you can't escape. And we don't always like being poked. I don't like to be poked. Please don't come and poke me after service. <laughs> Give me a hug, but don't poke me. Okay, but we need it. We need to be goaded by God's word. We need to be goaded into obedience. And these sayings, they're not just like goads, but they're also nails firmly fixed. And nailed because they're true. They're unchanging. Okay, when you forget these words, you can come back to them. You can read this book again, and they're still going to be here. And they're going to be the same words that they were the last time you heard them. And you're going to find that it's still going to poke you. It might poke you in different places, but it's still going to get you. Solomon also reminds us that ultimately these words, they are not his. These are the words of one shepherd. In your translation, it may have capitalized shepherd just in case you were going to miss it to know who that's referring to. It's that shepherd, it's the good shepherd. And the shepherd is God, and these are his words. He is the one who wrote this ultimately. It's a reminder this isn't just man's opinions. It's not just some old book that a bunch of old people got around and decided, ah, oh, yeah, this will be a nice scripture. Let's build a religion off of this. No, these are the very words of God. That is what we believe. And so verse 12, he tells us, my son, beware of anything beyond these. The making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. That's kind of a strange warning to have near the end of the book. 
Because it almost seems like it's a warning against wisdom. So I thought you just told me wisdom was great. What are you doing here? I, you know, we got to the end of the book. I expected to be less confused here. But Solomon is reminding us, I, I believe, that God's word is sufficient. That we don't need to go and seek wisdom beyond this. Okay, every year there's probably going to be hundreds of new books written on how to live a meaningful life. Probably way more than hundreds. Probably like tens of thousands every single year. Okay, that would break your brain if you tried to read all of those. Just read all of them, let alone try to apply them all and put them all together in your life. Okay, and studying all of that, that that's too hard. You're going to wear yourself out. Okay, and I, I've studied a lot. That's kind of just what I do a lot of the time. You know, I spent 10 years going to college and seminary, getting different master's degrees. Bought a stack of big old books on Ecclesiastes for this sermon series to help me try and figure this out. And you know what? All that study is pretty wearying. Okay, you... You don't need to do that. You don't need to go to, to the library. Well, it's a good library. You don't have to check out every single book. Just read Ecclesiastes. And then read it again. And be a little careful about going beyond it. Just read it. Besides all of that, you know, what's the point of all this wisdom anyway? All the Proverbs. The Proverbs, the wisdom that he's written. And Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. All the wisdom and... All of the wisdom, really, that Solomon's put together. I think it's not just in these two verses in 13 and 14, and not just, okay, here's the point of Ecclesiastes. Here's the point of everything that I've got. His conclusion is his thesis. Verse 13, the end of the matter. Everything's been heard. Wait and study it all. Don't try and check my work. You can, but you're going to wear yourself out. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And what does it mean to fear God? It means to obey God. It means to act like He is God. I spent a couple of months as a substitute teacher. Okay, and while doing that, I received some justice first for how I acted towards substitute teachers growing up. Because um, what you learn when you're doing that, if it's been a while, is that the substitute teacher does not receive the same amount of fear as the regular teacher does. Definitely not the same amount of respect. And this was even, you know, in a good private Christian school where all children are good and godly and safe from outside influences, right? No, yeah. Okay, there too, I was not feared or respected. Okay, well, what's the point? Point is, often we treat God like we treat a substitute teacher. We act as if we don't really recognize his authority. We act as if we don't care if he can see us being disobedient because what are you going to do about it? And we don't fear his discipline or his punishment. We don't fear him. Christians, this should not be so. Fearing God, it doesn't mean that we stand terrified of him. We're not sitting at our desk shaking in, in fear and anxiety. But it does mean that we treat him with the honor and respect that is due him because he's God and he's our creator. And we act and we live as if he is God. Now. As if he really is here in this room watching what we do, seeing if we're paying attention, seeing if we care about his words, seeing if we care about worshiping him. And we act like he is God, primarily here, his wisdom, by keeping his commandments. We obey what he asks of us. We do what he commands us to do regardless of the circumstances. No matter how we feel, no matter how evil the days are, no matter how much we don't want to do, we fear him and we do what he's asked us. Because this is our, our duty. This is the whole duty of man at the end of 13. This is our job assignment as Christians. 
Jesus didn't ask the disciples, hey, come and just believe in me, and then you can go back to your life and do whatever you were doing, kind of do it how you want, but just, just believe in me, and then we're good. No, he asked them, come and follow me. Follow me. Walk with me. Obey me. Do what I say. If you call yourself a Christian, you're obligated to obey Jesus. Okay, that's not legalism. That's just what it means to be a Christian. Because you do what Jesus asks. And it's not just the, the duty for Christians. It's actually the whole duty for all of mankind. It's our destiny. It's what we were created for. Okay, the, the culture, our, our world will tell us, you know, follow your heart. You're meant to just follow your own designs and just be your most authentic self. That that, that is your duty. That's what you're supposed to do. And there's a kernel of truth in there, which is what makes it attractive. But it's deceptive because that's not the whole truth. The truth is that our hearts were meant to fear God and to obey His commands. Hearts is that we, we were created to follow Jesus. You will never find your most authentic, most fulfilling self apart from Christ. It cannot be done. And Jesus, he, he doesn't just make us into a new creation. He does that, but He also makes us what we were always supposed to be. He restores what was lost in the garden. And the lie of the enemy is that, man, we can find that outside of the commands of God. But God's commands, they're not just arbitrary rules. They're not just the commands of a tyrant who wants to control every aspect of our lives. They're the instruction manual from a creator who wants us to live like he designed us and he made us to live. Like he thought this through. Like he knows more than we do. And he commands us to it, not because he's cruel or mean, but because he loves us. And when we fear God, when we obey His commandments, when we do our whole duty, then we become what we were always meant to be. Slowly but surely, we find what our innermost beings have always longed for and have never found outside of Jesus. Your truest self, the most authentic person, what your heart really wants, or what it should want, it is found in Jesus and in Christ. And we have to do this not just because it, it helps us to be ourselves, but because of verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. So all this book, we've heard vanity, your translation may say meaningless, vaporous, over and over. And you go, well, what's the point? What's the point of life? What's the point of this book? The point is... That we obey God always because one day all of us will stand before Him in judgment. And every single deed, every single thing that you have done, every secret thing, every private thought that you've had, every private moment alone that you thought no one was watching, whether good or evil, all of those have been before God's eyes. It'll be like he has a recording of our entire life, and not just a rec video recording of all of our action, but a transcript of all of your thoughts that have ever gone through your brain. Now, on one hand, this should slightly terrify you. Okay, that terrifies me to think about that. I don't want any of you having half of that. It should make us realize how sinful we are, right? How desperately we need grace and we need forgiveness. Because, okay, I thought I was really good until you got a hold of, you know, Everything I've ever thought. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I'd like to take back. I didn't really want to think that. But it also, what this should do is should motivate us. It should motivate us to fear God because He's watching. Should obey always. 
None of it is secret. None of it is outside of his eye. None of it is unknown. But I also think, paradoxically, I think part of this should be encouraging, too. I think this means as well that God sees and he recognizes every small, ordinary act of obedience. Even just in your thoughts. Everything, whether good or or evil, he sees it and he will reward it. For Christians who live their lives towards God, even if you feel like no one is watching, even if you wonder, what does it matter? Is it really worth it to do this? It feels like it's not working out. It matters. Even if the whole world is ignoring you or laughing at you or mocking you, because God sees. And one day when you stand before God at the judgment seat, you won't think, ah, well, I wish I would have sinned a little bit more. We will wish that we had obeyed him a little more. But there's a problem here, isn't there? Because we can't obey always. And we're really not able to do this on our own. And part of what the gospel reminds us in point number three is that the gospel empowers us to obey. The gospel empowers us to obey. Our problem is not just that we're sinners who, who don't obey. Our problem is that we can't obey even when we really want to. And that we don't want to obey as much as we should want to obey. Or as much as we wish that we would want to want to obey. But God doesn't leave us alone here. Okay, the message of Jesus and the Gospels is not just, Hey, obey because you're going to die and you better try harder and stop being such a disappointment. Knock it off. Okay, that wasn't Jesus' message. The message of the Gospel is, Hey, look, you're never going to obey enough because I've seen it and I've read it. But I love you anyway. And Jesus saves us anyway. We need the gospel because we can never be good enough without him. What we need is we need his grace. So we need his salvation. And no one will stand before that judgment seat and survive without the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. But then, right after saving us, what does he do? He then empowers us and he gives us the ability to obey. Which we need, because we can't do that without him. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Ezekiel 36. This was our, our call to worship this morning. Which reminds us of this gospel truth. In 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your fle flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Look at 25 first. Well, first he sprinkles clean water on us. It's a reference to being washed in the blood of Jesus. The only thing that can really clean you from all of your sins. So I were baptized in water. It's a physical reminder and it's, it's an acting out of the washing that Jesus' blood does on us. That we are washed clean. All of our disobedience, all of our failure, idolatry, it is washed away. And we're new. But Jesus doesn't just wipe our slate clean so that we can try again. This washing is our motivation. Right? When I get out of the shower after coming back from the gym, I don't really want to get dirty again. I don't want to go outside and mess in the mud. I just took a shower. I'm clean. I want to enjoy this feeling for a while. I'm motivated to stay clean. Now, a much greater way than that, the cleansing blood of Jesus should motivate us to stay clean. It should motivate us to not want to go mess around with idols and disobedience anymore. But the gospel doesn't just motivate us. It transforms us. In 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Look, we can't obey Jesus without being saved because our old hearts are dead. And when we put our faith in Christ, we're born again, right? The very core of our being is transformed and we are given new life. This is why we call it being born again. God goes to work like those reality shows where they take an old destroyed house and they give it new life and make it into something that you can't afford anymore. In verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God puts his spirit within us. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within your body. Your body is a temple, whether you are in nonstop pain or whether you feel better than you ever have. Your body is a temple, not because of what it is, but because of what resides inside of it, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is inside of us, He empowers us to obey. And I cause you to walk in my statutes. That cause, it's not something we do, it is something that God does in us. If you're a Christian, you've probably had moments where you felt like the Holy Spirit took over. Okay, maybe someone asked you for help or for wisdom and something came out of your mouth and you went, wow, I have no idea where that come from. Wow, how did, I've never heard that before. That was pretty good. I should write that down. Wow, I didn't even know I had that verse memorized. Okay, that's not you. That's the Holy Spirit causing things inside of you. Or a situation, you were in something and you were sitting there looking like, wow, normally I would be so angry and losing my mind, but I am just calm as can be and filled with patience. What is going on here? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. As he works inside of us to cause us to walk in obedience. And he causes us to be careful and to obey my rules. So it's not something that we can do on our own. We don't have to do it on our own. Because God is with you. And God is, he will empower you and he will help you to obey him. And he equips us with what we need. Right? The process of sanctification, it's a slow one. Sydney reminded us in his prayer, it doesn't happen overnight. If it's happened overnight for you, I have some questions. Some things change quick, but there's a lot of things that change slowly. But the Holy Spirit, bit by bit, he transforms us. And bit by bit, he gives us the tools we need to keep digging out those roots of sin that go down really deep. But he's working. And the beauty of this, too, is that, well, then in the life to come, God will reward us for what he did in us. Right? Our rewards, when Christ returns, they're not because we were so awesome. Because we, we did everything with the help of the Holy Spirit. But it would be just like I reward my children when they, they're helping me make breakfast. Okay? They help, but, you know, I'm doing a lot of the legwork here. But they can't do it unless I, I empower them. And we can't follow Jesus, we can't even obey Him without the gospel, but God loves to aid us and to help us because we're His children. And because He loves us and He cares for us and He died for you. Too many Christians, I think often we can hear sermons, maybe even like this, and we can think, you know, I just need to try harder. I need to work more, do more things. I need to read more books. And, and, and maybe that's true. Maybe you might need to do that. But you will not be able to do any of that on your own. You need to get the gospel right first. We do need to obey. We must obey. That is the point of our life. But we can't obey without Jesus. And we can't obey Jesus unless he helps us. So in conclusion, you know, where have you been? We should obey even in evil days. We should obey always. And the gospel is the good news that after we receive it, it empowers us to obey. As we, we close the book on Ecclesiastes and we move on, I want you to remember this. You know, as a preacher, I do think it's my job to prepare you and myself and all of us for death. 
And the thing that we have to know more than anything so you can be ready on that day is to follow Jesus. And if you're a non-believer, you need to give your life to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've got to follow him. You've got to obey him. And when you're struggling and you're weak and you're failing, I have good news for you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, and he will empower you to obey. I invite our worship team to come up and lead us one last time as I close this in prayer. Lord, I, I ask and, and I, I plead that you would come and you would help us. Lord, I just re reminded us and you reminded us that we cannot do this on our own, that we need you. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to obey you in our whole lives. Help us to obey you in everything that we do, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our, our automatic responses to things that we do without even thinking. Lord, would those be less of what our sinful nature does and would our automatic responses slowly become more and more the things that your Holy Spirit causes us to do. Lord, would we more and more be made into the image of Jesus? But we can't do this unless you help us. So as your little children who have put their faith in you, Lord, we look up at you, our Father, and we just ask, help us, Father. Help me, Daddy. Because we need you. And we can't do it on our own. I pray these things in your holy and your precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand and worship with us one last time through song. And we, we know who holds our hands no matter what tomorrow brings. Now, we're done with the book of Ecclesiastes, and one of my thoughts in doing that was, well, I'm sure by the end of that, when good or bad, you'll be ready for Jesus to come and for Christmas. So we're going to be starting the Gospel of Luke um, next week. It'll take us a while to get through the book of Luke. We'll, we'll see. Um, I think it's going to take us about 51 weeks. But we'll start off, I'm going to do the whole book next week. Um, and then I'll take a long time, but I'll do it quickly first. Um, but So if you want to start getting ready, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. And I'm really excited um, just to slowly look at Jesus' life and his ministry um, and see what he has for us. But here's our, our benediction from the end of 2 Corinthians 13. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace.